We have so much to cover on this communion Sunday. We are going to go through the entire book of Revelation. Some of you think, this man is daft. This is impossible. Well, let's just see. Shall we raise your hand if you don't have a Bible? And if you do have a Bible, open it up, please, to Revelation. By the way, first and foremost, let's start with this. It is singular. There is no revelations. It's revelation. So would everyone just once practice that and say, Revelation. Come on now, there's more than just the five of you did that. Revelation. Thank you. Now, from this point on, it's Revelation. Just want to make that really clear. If you want to say Revelations, just tell them you go to another church. Anyway, sorry. Here we go. Revelation. Take a look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. That gets us right in the beginning. The word for Revelation is the word apocalypsis. We get the word apocalypse from it. Apo means out of. Lupsis is the idea of a cover. The literal term for revelation is the idea of the removing of a cover or the cover off. The idea that something's been covered in. Ta-da! Well, let's get to prayer right away and let's dig in. Lord Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, captivate us in your word. Overcome us with wonder as we seek now, Lord, to study your word. God, may we understand better than ever because first we trust you. So, Lord, now reveal yourself, I pray. Lord, may we have so much fun in your word. And over this next hour, Lord, between the time in your word and communion, make it the time where we'd say, that was just amazing. But not in that amazement where our brains turn into gelatin and we just ooze. But in that place where our hearts explode with gratitude and joy and wonder. So, speak fluent us, God, every one of us individually where we need to hear. Speak to our hearts and minds today. Overcome me with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would speak through me and do through me what no human can do, but only you can now. Save, heal, encourage, transform it and renew our minds. And let this time be perfect, I pray, every second in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I want any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Look at verse 1 with us. That's the fundament all of it. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Can you just say those words? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Your turn. Thank you. Now, this is going to be a little play back and forth, but it should be really easy. So this is why it's the book of Revelation instead of the book of Revelations. Because what is it revealing in this book? Yeah, that should be a fairly easy one, right? Because this is the revelation of... Thank you. It looks like, okay, we need to start serving some uh, cappuccinos on this side. The revelation of? Yes, that's the point. That's what I'm looking for through this whole book. The reason why this can be so frightening. People don't want to read this book, and I'll show you why in a moment. But one of the things is they forget what they're looking for. This is not the revelation of freaky looking creatures dancing around the throne. And they're only weird because we've never seen them before. But now that I live in Camden, it's not so weird at all to me, to be honest. It's not the revelation of the end times, though it will reveal that. See, the point is, if you remove Jesus from any of these things, they can be a bit troubling. But the moment you put Jesus in the middle of it, everything makes sense. That's the point here. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants. That's us, by the way, I pray. Things which must shortly take place. And he sent them and signified them by his angel to his servant, John. 
Look at verse 3 with us. So you can see why you may be so tempted not to want to read this book. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it for the time is near. Did you notice, is there any other book you can think of in all of the 66 there are in scripture where it actually promises you to be blessed by simply reading it? Can you see why the enemy who cannot touch you but can lie to you? has spent so much time to keep you from reading it. Did you notice, by the way, it's blessed is he, singular, who reads, and those, plural, who hear and keep? Did you notice that? God wants you reading it on your own. We're going to read it here, at least a good portion of it. But he wants us as a corporation, as a family, to keep it, to hear it, and to keep it, because the time is near. In verse 4, it tells us that John... That is the Apostle John, who we know from the Gospel of John, who writes the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the brother of James, one of the sons of Zebedee, also called a son of thunder, which to me sounds like a wrestling term. It's like, we're the sons of thunder! That's, I mean, and that's kind of their character. The reason I say that is they kind of always make him out to be something a little bit like a pansy. I mean, it's always like you kind of look at the Renaissance, and the guy is sort of like, he would be wearing skinny jeans or girls' jeans today, and he'd be making, I mean, and the reason I say that is it's because he's the guy, he's the, he's the disciple of love, and he speaks of love, but he's the guy that wanted to call fire down from heaven when when a town in Samaria wouldn't let him through. The reason I say that is it's one thing for a guy to be like, come on, everybody, we really need to love one another. And if you're one of those types, praise the Lord. But it's another thing for a guy to like, in your face, and then telling everyone, you need to love one another. And that's the idea I get of this guy. This was a guy that was rugged. He was a fisherman who I want to remind you has been walking with Jesus now for over 60 years. When he has this revelation. And he tells us that it is specifically the only letter we have written to seven specific locations. Look in verse four. It tells us to the seven churches which are in Asia. This is not Asia like China, Korea. This is Asia like the western coast of Turkey. That, by the way, then is Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those are the seven churches. Interesting, because John, the guy who's writing this, was the pastor or overseer of the churches in Ephesus before he was deported to the island of Patmos. But that day was a penal colony. Today, this tiny little island you can walk from one end to the other in about an hour and a half has 365 churches. And every one of them where John got the revelation, of course. So he got it apparently 300, every day of the, week, of the year, apparently. Well, the point is, is that back in those days, he was a 90-something-year-old guy cutting rock on that island when the Lord pulled him aside and showed him all of this. And I think that's interesting because we're going to see the term angel of the church in chapters 2 and 3. And I remind you, angel, angelas, simply means, and I'll say again, don't just believe me, but this is what Scripture makes clear, is an occupation, not a species. We get so used to thinking angel, somebody with wings, little naked baby with a harp. We get these ideas in our head. But an angel, when a person goes out and shares the gospel regularly, what do you call him? You tell me. An evangelist, ev or eu, you, angelos, that's the word angel. Literally, it means good angel. And the reason I say that is, though there are seraph 
and cherub, those are species. Cherubim, seraphim. Seraphim, by the way, the word means fiery. I get the idea that when God speaks of a cherub, plural im, cherubim, seraph or seraphim, he's speaking of a species. But an angel is a spokesman or a messenger. In the Gospels, when John, who at that point, John the Baptist, who was in prison, sends people to ask Jesus, are you really the guy we're looking for? We read that he sends messengers. The term there, same angelos. Did he send little winged little naked babies? Did he send glowing, fiery winged creatures? Or did he send people? That's just important to note. Because you know what's really cool for me? Is if the angel of the church, because otherwise you have to come up with a doctrine that no other scripture speaks about, the idea that every church has an angel, some little whatever. Or is it the messenger of the church, the one who's there bringing the message to the people? If that were the case, this would be written to me if he was speaking of this church. And the reason I say that is I take it very seriously. Here's the point. John has been on this penal colony. And when God says, speak to the messenger, for instance, of the church of Ephesus, that would have been him. But now he had left it in the hands of Polycarp. Now, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, by the way, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, <clears throat> Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then he says, well, Jesus then shows him himself. God pulls John up to heaven and he sees Jesus. Now, hear me for a second, and I'm developing chapter 1 because we're going to really see the structure here in a moment. Here right now, y'all looking good. you got your makeup on, you've done your hair. Most of you, or not all of you, have washed your clothes. And most of you, more prayerfully, all of you have even done something hygienic this morning. Brushed your teeth, took a shower, whatever. Because you kind of knew you would be around people. And because you knew you would be around people, something inside of you, perhaps even selfless, decided, why punish them? Let's clean ourselves. Something inside of us that wants to be wanted made ourselves look as nice as we can. Bruno spent hours working on his hair, Daniel on his beard. Um, you know, these are important things because we kind of want to make sure that people see us in our best light. But if you really want to know who the person is, you see him at home, right? At that point, you stop sucking it in. It's just... Lopping over the belt by that point. Makeup's off, the hair isn't done, and you get to see who the person really is. Now, that's kind of important, isn't it? Because real friends get to see you for who you really are. The reason I say that is Jesus took John to his house, and he got to see Jesus for who he really is. And here's the difference between Jesus and everyone else. What John sees is better. You get us at our house? No. Prayerfully, what you see is what you get. By the way, I take really, I really work rather hard to make sure that I'm human everywhere. I mean, not that I can be anything else. I mean, I don't wear makeup here any more than I do at home, which is none, by the way. Just make that clear. You know, I work all my, I, and I put my four hairs in order and everything is fine. Now, here's the point, is that somewhere down the line, John is now taken. And, and, and it isn't like John woke up that morning and went, maybe I'll get a revelation today. John was cutting rock, and somewhere down the line, Jesus went, whoop, up you go. And he just goes, looks, and he sees Jesus at home. And when he sees Jesus at home, Jesus doesn't have to turn down like he did on earth. 
Paul would write that Jesus dwells in, or God dwells in inapproachable light. Do you know what I mean? It's so bright you can't even get near it. But John is taken in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, on a Sunday, and he's taken there and he sees Jesus for who he really is. You know what he sees? He sees hair that's white and a head that's white and a robe that's white and eyes like lightning. That's what he says, a flame of fire. And feet like Chakalibanan. And when's the last time you ever been near Chakalibanan? See, we don't even we're like, what in the world is that? And we write it as burnished bronze. I'm not even sure what burnished bronze is kind of per se, but let me say the idea of it's simple. The closest example we can give today is arc welding. Are any of you familiar with arc welding? Those guys that take that little torch and they go like, like that, and they wear that big old Iron Man, like part one Iron Man mask, you know? And the reason I say that is, I think, and I have a friend who's a professional welder. I mean, and he's a really gifted artist. But because of that, I remember he was with another guy, and they were both professional welders. And the guy did this little thing where you have to do a spot weld, you know, like that, and just shoots out fire for a moment, but he lifted up his mask just for this quick moment, and it melted his contacts onto his eyes. That gives you an idea of what we're dealing with here. And John says, I looked at his feet, and that's what I saw. And I'm like, well, please understand, we are not trying to identify race here. Jesus is God. Because other people say, well, that's clearly how you can tell that Jesus came from Africa. I mean, who else has white hair and skin like bronze? Come on. He's glowing. That's the point. The point isn't what color he is. He's emanating light and purity. I don't care if he's green. I don't care if he's blue like a smurf. The point is that he's God. He could appear any way he wants. But the point is he's at home. And what he is, is he's so pure. John goes, whoa. And he's not only just this, emitting light, beautiful white, everything perfect and pure and clean. But he's standing among seven lampstands. And God, by the way, doesn't have a problem creating a metaphor. Now, it isn't like everything God does is metaphorical. If God says this is this, there's no metaphor in it. It just is what it is. But he even says, these seven lampstands are these seven churches that you're writing to. And I get the idea here that John understood the concept as a Jewish boy of these lampstands because it's what got a priest from the holy place to the most holy place where on Yom Kippur the blood was laid before God for the forgiveness of sins. And without those lampstands, you are seeing nothing. And understand, can I just make this clear? Jesus never said you are a light of the world. He says you are the light of the world. And without Christians shining, nobody gets to see who God is. There will be misrepresentations. There's no doubt about it. But for all the terms we've sacrificed to think that we're going to be relevant are the same terms that the world just then takes and redefines. Let's stop doing that. Let's just claim them for what they are. And holy is holy. Pure is purity. God knows what he's talking about. And the reason I say that is John sees these lampstands and you realize this is the light. And that's what he sees. But he also sees Jesus holding in his right hand seven stars. Now, I don't know how big you have to be to hold seven stars. It isn't like seven little light things like, you know, like Tinkerbells or something. But it's like seven stars in his hand. And he says, these are the seven Messengers of those churches. Which is interesting because at that moment, John falls on his face and Jesus puts his hand upon him. And we read his right hand, the same hand that held those seven stars. 
And I realized, please understand, as a pastor, as a messenger, and God willing, you too, he holds you in his hands. And we always think about how important it is to hold on to the Lord. But truth be told, the issue is how great he's holding on to you. And Jesus is no one is able to snatch him out of my hand. So hear me on this. What does John see? John sees Jesus, to be honest, for who he really is. And here's the point, beloved. That unless you see Jesus for who he really is, and it's the only physical description, by the way, of him in Scripture, other than he had no stately form or majesty that we see, by the way, in the book of Isaiah. But please hear me in this. He sees the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the one standing among the golden lampstands, robe white, head white, hair white, eyes like lightning, feet like arc welding, countenance like the sun in its greatest moment, voice like the mightiest waterfalls, seven stars in his hand, the seven messengers, the one who lives was dead, behold, alive forevermore, having the keys of death and Hades, or Hades and death, and John just flips. He's like, oh man, I'm a dead man, I just saw this, and look at verse 19 of chapter 1 with me. In verse 17, go back to that, actually, and says, just to get context. When I saw him, I fell as if dead. He laid his right hand on me, and he said to me, don't be afraid. Now, at that moment, would you be afraid? I'll be honest, I would be. It's, there's nothing in my life that I could think, even in my greatest moment, oh, clearly God's going to be like, well, that's, man, you are living a perfect life at this moment, buddy. I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who lives, was dead, but behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys to Hades and death. And then you look at, look at verse 19. Here is why this is the easiest book of all the books in the Bible to teach. Because he even gives us our structure. He says, write the things which, one, you have seen. Say, you have seen. Come on, John, come on now. Now, there's a whole lot more of me going, speaking in the moment than you. But what you have seen. Thank you. Second, the things which are. And third, the things which must take place after this. Beautiful. So, what you've seen, which, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Now, the word after this, the only Greek word I'm going to give you right now is a simple word. Metatauta. Can you say metatauta? Meta, midst, or through, tauta. And the idea of it is after these things. So, look at the things which are. I'm sorry, the things which you've seen. The things which are, and the things which must take place after these things. Right? Guess what? Chapter 1, John writes the things he's seen. What has he seen? Yeah, he's seen Jesus. Because remember, it's the revelation of... And the things things he's seen are Jesus. And he writes it. Chapter 1, the things which he has seen. Chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches. Each in their unique situation, by the way. Ephesus left their first love. Smyrna, going to be radically persecuted. Pergam is compromising, but the simplicity of truth. Thyatira now has raised up a false prophetess that God, by the way, calls Jezebel. Sardis is dead. Philadelphia, the church of Philly, the one missional church. And then the church of Laodicea, that's lukewarm. In chapters 2 and 3, he says, now let's get to those churches. Now that you've written down what you've seen, which again is Jesus. Now we see chapters 2 and 3, the things which are, which is Jesus with these churches. Because it's the revelation of? Oh, this is it. Come on now, pass your test. This is the revelation of? There we go. So chapters 2 and 3, the things which are. Things which he's seen, chapter 1. That's Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3, the things which are, which is Jesus and the churches. 
But what's interesting, by the way, and if you miss this verse, you really kind of miss what God's trying to do for the rest of this. Oh, look at it with me. Chapter 3, verse 10. He's writing to that sixth of the seven churches, Philadelphia. Look at this verse with me, by the way. I mean, this, well, anyways, it's coming. It's coming. It's exciting. It's like Jesus. It's coming. It's going to be good. Yeah, there we go. Now, look at This is what he writes to that Philadelphian church. He says, and this is in Philadelphia, by the way, Pennsylvania. This is Philadelphia, by the way, in the western area of Turkey. It says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those on the earth. Ooh. Now, I don't know about you, but if there were seven churches to join, and those were the seven churches in, Philadelphia, or seven churches in, in uh, Revelation, and Jesus says there is going to be a time where the entire earth is going to be tested, and this church is going to miss it, I'm into going there. How about you? Because he says this church is going to miss it. Now, that also tells me what's going to happen after this. It's not a time, and this is going to be the fundament. It is not, the question is, this tribulation that we see that's going to come. Is it a time of punishing the rebellious, or is it a time of pushing repentance? Because if we think that what the whole tribulation is, is God just pouring forth one horrible thing after another to punish people, why doesn't he just send them to hell? I mean, if that's really all there is, is that... Why does God get his jollies prolonging the problem? That is not the case. Now, the word test here is the idea of weighing it out for what it really is. So think of it this way. Let's say with Jesus tells us about Paul teaches us this, by the way, in the Corinthian letters about how something is built. No other foundation can be laid than that which is Jesus Christ. And he says you can choose your building materials. It's like God gives you a B&Q card. And he says, now you can choose. On one side, it can be gold, silver, and precious stones. Faith and obedience and wonder and trust. That's God wants that. He goes, on the other side, it can be your own personal selfish ambitions. Hey, wooden stubble. He says, you know what it'll be tested by? Fire. Here's the interesting thing. Fire is a great thing for precious minerals. Because you know what fire does to them? It purifies them. So maybe your life's a little clogged right now. Maybe it's a little weighed down with unnecessary dross. Alloys that make you less flexible, like one would. Gold, by the way, for instance, is more heavy than it is strong. So when you get, that's why people do not get pure gold rings, because they'll break. I've broken two wedding rings off my hand, one moving and one surfing. Now the wedding ring that I have on my hand is literally airplane titanium. If my finger swells up, every once in a while my finger will swell up and I'll have to put it down a little bit because if my finger swells up and starts losing circulation, they have to amputate my finger because you can't cut through it. It's that crazy because I'm like, I'm not going to break another wedding ring. But the first one, by the way, was gold. And it's like, it wasn't pure gold, but what happens is you add then other things that are less precious minerals to make it stronger and tougher and more rigid. But even that, it's like after about a half a year, I'm just a little too active. It turned into this really oblong thing, right? Even with all that, this one is still very, very round. Here's the point. 
is that there is going to be a time where, let's say, I'm not sure. You know, you ever met somebody and you really think that person actually really does trust in Jesus. They just don't know it yet. I mean, they're talking like it and stuff. You know, it's like, man, you should just really take a careful look in your heart because you really do trust the Lord. You just aren't really aware as much of what you're saying then. See, what the Lord is going to do in that time, and we'll see it in a moment, is he's really going to just start burning off everything else till either nothing is left or all that's left is that nugget of faith so people can turn to him. This is not God punishing people because if he wanted to just do, if that's all he wanted to do, well, then he could just send them to hell. But what he's doing is he's pushing people to the point where if there's any possibility of you saying yes to him, this is going to be it because what he wants is for you to say yes to him. So listen. Three sections. The first section. Write down the things which you have seen. Beautiful. And that, what has he seen? Jesus. Second, write the things which are. And that is chapters 2 and 3. The churches. Jesus with the churches. So then I would expect from 4 on to be the things which must take place or will take place after this. And what's that Greek word, by the way? Oh, you got it. It's close. Actually, our Greeks aren't here today. Metatauta. And I'll show you why that's important. So here we are. We've gone through chapter 3. We're really making good time, aren't we? Chapter 4. Look at the first five verses, by the way. Maybe first six verses. So we've seen what, Je- what Paul, or sorry, what John has seen. That's Jesus. We've seen what things which are these seven churches in their states, by the way, of which it's Jesus and his relationship with them. And then in chapter 4, look at verse 1, just to see if that's really the structure he's going with. Remember, that's the scene, things which are, which must or will take place after this metatauta. Look at verse 1. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and a first voice which I saw was a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. That word metatauta, by the way, just so that God wanted to make sure you didn't miss it, is the first and the last word of verse 1. Look at it with me. It says, after these things, what's the word? Metatauta. I looked and there was a door open in heaven. God pulls me up and I'm going to show you. Behold. And he says, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Metatauta. Metatauta. Do you think he's trying to get the point across? Write the things which you have seen. What is that? Jesus. Chapter 1. Because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then, chapters 2 and 3. Write the things which... Are, and that's Jesus with these churches. And now write down the things which will take place after these things. And what's that word? Metatauta. And John gets to get taken to heaven. And you could say today, my pastor took me to heaven. Not in some weird way. We're not handing out Kool-Aid. It's here in Scripture. Now, here's the point. Now that, no, understand this, this, after this, the things which must take place start with a heavenly worship service. They don't start with tribulation. They start with a heavenly worship service. The question is, when, when, just like any place, when you were taken up someplace, you look for the landmark, the thing from which you get your reference. Does that make sense? I'm going to read these first handful of verses. As I read these handful of verses, my question to you is, what is the landmark for which everything else seems to be based on. Are you ready? I'm going to read starting in verse 2. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one who sat on the throne. And he was there was like a jasper. By the way, that's a lot like a, a diamond. 
And it was starred to a stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne and an appearance like an emerald. And around the throne were 24, el- 24 thrones. And on those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed with white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunders, voices, seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes front and back. What's the landmark? Beloved, did you get it? It's like it doesn't matter what the thing was besides it, it was always in reference to the throne. Did you notice that? It's either before it, it was around it, it was beside it, coming from it, but the throne was everything. Now that is so important because understand God has this habit of actually showing you himself on the throne before chaos breaks loose because he really wants you to be reminded, I'm on the throne. In the book of Isaiah, we see the same thing. Remember, it says, I saw the Lord, and he was full of glory, and the train of his, of his robe filled the temple. And where was he? On his throne. And then he's like, well, sigh, got some things to show you. And the reason I say that is the Lord wants you to know he is in control. Even in the most chaotic moments, even when things seem the most lunatic, even when things seem to be so far out of your reach, He's still in control. Are you with me on that? Now, <clears throat> John is there. And imagine, he's, he's there at heaven. And as he's there at heaven, there is this beautiful worship service. But the first part of it, is, and the clarity of it, is about a scroll. And this scroll is a scroll written on the front and back, sealed with seven seals. Now, we don't get a lot of that today. But John wouldn't know what that is. Now, understand, here's the idea. And if you understand this, now that we understand the idea of pushing people to repentance. Some of you have that testimony, by the way, where things were good and you would have never turned to God. And everything that you trusted in burns away from you and falls away from you. And you get to that place where you are at rock bottom and you finally say, all right, you're right, you're right. As much as you may have hated the journey there, I am so thankful for the product. Well, hear me. If you were a landowner 2,000 years ago and you owned a lot of property, you may lend it out or rent it out to tenant farmers. Tenant farmers are those, by the way, it's sort of like owning a house today and allowing people to, to use it, to let it. Except in those days it was a little bit more so because they had to work the land and they gave you a portion of the profit. Interesting. If they give you a portion of the profit, that means they're doing their job right. But what if they took the land and actually just selfishly took it for themselves and claimed it as their own? Well, what would you do? Interesting. There's a text, and I'm going to read to you now from Luke chapter 20. Because in Luke chapter 20, Jesus gives us this parable. And listen closely. This is chapter 20, verse 9. He began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard. He leased it to vine dressers. And he went into a far country for a long time. Now, at vintage time, he sends servants to the vine dressers. Some of you are familiar with the story. And that he might get some of the fruit of the vineyard. The vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they'll respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This 
is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Now you tell me how many things he's going to do here. Listen closely. He will come and destroy the vine dressers, give the vineyard to others. And when he heard, they heard this, they said, certainly not. How many things did they say he was going to do? He will come, destroy the vine dressers, and give the, vine dresser, or give the vineyard to others. That's three things. Did you see that? Now, the reason Jesus says it this way, now the people he's speaking to are very offended because they realize Jesus is speaking of them. When, say, let's say that the land was given to someone and that the people that now have claimed responsibility, like squatters, there has to be a process to remove such an individual. The process is threefold. The first thing that has to happen is the reclaim. And the way that the reclaim happens, by the way, is that the bankrupt deed now of that property, because they've now let the ground go follow, that the owner has to come and actually open up that title deed, written with instructions or uh, conditions on the outside of this particular deed. So to break the seals is him reclaiming his land. Does that make sense? Once he reclaims the land, and what he's saying is, I'm back, I own this land, the next thing he has to do is proclaim that to the neighborhood, because as he proclaims that, what he has to do then is saying, I'm evicting these people. So the first thing is he has to come and he has to come and then he has to reclaim and then he has to proclaim that and then last he has to reinstate the land. Like it says here, and then he will give it to others. So he's going to come, throw out the old guys, and then bring in a whole new batch of people to, for them to do so. Threefold. Interesting. Do you know how he does that? They take a bowl, the guy takes a bowl, like a cup in the day, but he takes a bowl and he goes to the, the gate and he shares it with the elders of the city so they all know not only is the owner, but now he's fully opening up for business again under a new group of people. Does that make sense? Fascinating. Because the first thing was opening seals, the second one was the blowing of a trumpet, and the third was the pouring forth of a bowl. Why is that important? Because that's exactly what we're going to see in the book of Revelation. Follow me on this, by the way. So this is what happens. In chapter 4, there is a worship service. And the worship service, by the way, are people that are now gathered together. There's this tremendous, and there's this holiness. And please hear me, this is the fundament. Holy just means, and pardon me for saying this, but it means weird, unique, different. And this is what is so missing from the church. We're trying to understand God instead of being in awe of Him. See, God is actually infinite. How do I wrap my head around something that's never started here on earth? How do I wrap my head against something that never ends here on earth? How do I wrap my, my head against somebody who has total power, total wisdom, infinite in his love and his patience? I don't see anything like that anywhere. The church should be the closest place we get. And that is why faith comes before understanding. Some people, like, we want to understand God, and if we understand Him, then we trust Him. But this is what the Bible says. Trust in the Lord. Lean not upon your own understanding, and in all of your ways acknowledge Him. We've become such a... We're too smart to do what's so important. We're so smart, we're stupid. You know what Jesus says? If you really want to learn how to trust me, who did He tell us to watch? Children. He says, unless your faith is like these little children, you'll never even make claim to the kingdom the way you need to. And you know, they're not about, well, let me figure this thing out completely before I step in it. 
We have to tell kids not to follow strangers because if they offer them candy, they'll take it and go. There's a danger to that simple faith, but not if the person's perfect. So hear me. They're looking and saying, is there anyone who can actually claim this deed? The elder says, oh, look, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when John sees, he sees a lamb slain. From heaven's perspective, the invincible lion, but from John's, the slaughtered lamb. And with that, then, everybody says, not just holy, holy, holy. They say, worthy, worthy, worthy. You are the one worthy to do this. And that takes us to chapter 6 through 19. Chapter 6 through 19, hear me, and it's simple. The world says, I want a world without you. God says, no, you don't. They say, yes, we do. God says, no, you don't. They say, yes, we do. God says, it's hell without me. And they're like, so? What you're going to see then in 6 through 19 is not God pouring forth all of these horrible things as much as God removing his blessing from the world. Interesting, by the way, and I challenge you on your own time to look at this, Romans chapter 1. Because in Romans chapter 1 it says, and remember that word reveal, revelation? It's used there too. When it says the wrath of God is being revealed against the wickedness and godlessness of men who suppress the truth by their own ungodliness. The wrath of God is being revealed. And I challenge you to look in chapter 1 at anything that God does. There's only one thing that God does there. Listen, it says he gave him up, he gave him up, he gave him over. People said, I don't want you, I'm going to do this instead. And God's holding him back and he goes, oh, and he lets him go a little bit. And then he lets him go a little bit and then he lets him go. That's God's wrath is actually letting you run to your own destruction. Yeah, that's actually God's wrath. Prove me wrong. Take a look at it for yourself. Here, that's exactly what we see. So listen, people are like, oh, I don't like this portion. It scares me because there's all of these horrible things. And the question is, how far do you have to go before you finally just give over to Christ? How far do you have to go before you finally say, all right, all right, all right, it's yours? Because this is what it looks like. Chapter 6 through 19 is the tribulation period. Tribulation just means a time of trouble. There are three sets of judgments, remember? The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. The seals, again, to reclaim ownership. The trumpets, to proclaim ownership. And the bowls, then, to reinstate. But here's the interesting thing. When the seals are poured forth and the judgment comes with it, 144,000 super Jewish evangelists come forth and a mass of believers result is it. So let's listen. Is this God punishing people? This is the result. Chapter 7, verse 9. Notice what it says. It says, A great multitude, behold, a great multitude, no one can number of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. God has now a second worship service. Well, who are these people? These were people who have given their life to Christ in the great tribulation. Interesting. Was this God punishing or was this God pushing repentance? Because he took the lukewarm, the lackadaisical, the indifferent and apathetic, and what he's done now is he's brought a harvest. The seals brought forth a harvest. That was his end. Then come the trumpets. And as the trumpet judgments come forth, look at chapter 11. In chapter 11, we see two witnesses. Perhaps you're familiar with them. Apparently appearing, seemingly, Moses and Elijah. But notice it says in chapter 11, verse 15, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of the Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And notice there's a proclamation. Remember, we're proclaiming here. And during this time, we will see a one-world government. 
false prophet, false antichrist. I'm sorry, an antichrist. Babylon is the commercial center. And by the way, something you might find interesting, I did, or I still do, is that when they mourn the destruction of Babylon, and we'll see that here in a moment, when they mourn the destruction of Babylon, they mourn it because of everything from base materials to finished products are sold, including the bodies and souls of men. Among all of the commercial things for sale in Babylon, one of the fundamental ones is human trafficking. Should that surprise us? Well, that's what it says. No wonder why God's taking it down. And then God gives a last call. Interesting. Because during that time, he will actually send reapers to reap. We'll see that later after the others. To reap the harvest of human souls. People that have given their life to him. But it says in chapter 14, verse 6. I saw another angel flying from the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Hey, by this point, God has sent an angel. If you live on an island by yourself somewhere and you're the only person, you're still going to hear the angel who spans the earth. You are not going to die without a choice. Then the bowls get poured forth, and then comes a final harvest. Do you see with every one of these, the difference between this and the way it would happen if you took back the land 2,000 years ago is he gives the people a chance to repent. In every one of these things, what he's doing is he's calling out to people saying, how about now? Will you say yes to me now? Will you say, how bad does it have to get before you say yes? For some of us, we could not come without being thrown to the carpet. Some of us were just keenly aware of an emptiness inside. With that in mind, just the same, then come the bulls. With that's the fall of Babylon, the false prophet, the fall of the Antichrist. Satan's bound for a thousand years, and we read, of course, of what we call the millennial reign, a thousand-year reign. Interesting. People would be like, oh, really? They think Jesus is going to rule for a thousand years? Those people didn't have a problem with it. Rome ruled for over a thousand years. It wasn't like that couldn't happen. But here's the difference. Jesus rules with an iron fist. And what he shows us is what happens if God were just to rule without people given a choice. Today, there's a part of the body of Christ that teaches that man doesn't have a choice. This shows us what it looks like. Interesting. After that thousand years, when man is given a choice, what happens is that that Satan is released, comes out, and gathers an army of over 200 million people. And then there was a battle in a specific location that Napoleon even looked at and said, this should be the, the place of the greatest battle. The place is the hill of a town called Megiddo. The term for hill is the term Har. Har is a natural hill. A hill built from ruins of cities is called a tell. So the hill of Megiddo would be Har Megiddo, and that's where we get the term Armageddon. Literally means the hill of Megiddo. So let me put it into portion. We have that things which you have Seeing, and what is that? Jesus. We have chapters uh, 2 and 3 and the things which are, and that's Jesus with the churches. Chapters 4, then through the end, we have this worship service where Jesus is the worthy one. And then we see Jesus consistently less in the world and how horrible life gets until the end. Do you see? Because what I'm looking for is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And the less he seems part of the world, same with you, by the way, the less he's part of your world, the more chaotic it's going to be get. It's going to get. And so with that, we see the seals. And with the seals, then we see 144,000 sort of evangelists and people get saved. And there's this harvest. And then we see the trumpets. And with the trumpets, then God sends these two witnesses and a bunch of people get saved. And then God pours forth these bowls and he reaps this harvest. And finally, this angel spans the earth so that everyone hears the everlasting gospel and people get saved. Do you get the point why God's doing this? And it shouldn't freak you out if you're on the side of Philadelphia. Then Satan is bound. Jesus rules with an iron fist. And ultimately what will happen is Satan will be released. There will be one last battle, the battle at Hadar Megiddo. And then our last two chapters. How was that for the book of Revelation? The last two chapters show us what happens on the other side of that. And this is the part I want us to look at for the rest of our time. Interesting, perhaps you're familiar with the fact that it says that the meek shall inherit the earth from Matthew chapter 5, and you think, who wants it? Here's the good news. It's not the one you see now. It's a new heaven and a new earth. And that's then a new concept. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, listen, God says, Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. Listen, this is so important. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Have you ever had a dream where the dream was so vivid? In it, you experienced all kinds of things. I mean, you had emotions. You even felt like you felt pain. And you, and you ever see where you like sort of know someone, but they don't have the same face? Like something beyond their physical description allows you to recognize them? You're like, I don't know. It's like, you know, I saw my wife, but this time she was kind of a gigantic Nordic clown or something. But she was, I'm, in my heart, I knew she was, you know, that kind of thing. And it's like somehow in all of that. And then you wake up and somewhere it sort of evaporates into the reality of real life. And none of that stuff's going to matter. Welcome to the dream, beloved. Because soon we're going to wake up from this and it will evaporate. And when this evaporates, the reality of this living God and this new heaven and this new earth that Peter knew about, because he told us in Second Peter, that this earth right now and the heavens we know are already reserved for fire, where the elements will melt in fervent heat. See, right now, if you split one atom, if you split one atom, we could blow up all of London. If we split one atom, and you've got over 300 trillion of them. Imagine how much of this world you could damage if all the atoms in your thumbnail decided to actually release. And we read that he holds all things together by his powerful word. All Jesus has to do is say, poof, or whatever word he wants to use. And everything melts and is just over. Everything. Our careers, our struggles, our challenges, train strikes, our favorite restaurant, the one we swore we'd never eat at again. The only thing that's going to remain at that point are people. That's all that's left. So look at this with me now in our few minutes remaining. And, it's like, and I just adore these chapters because I want you to realize, spoiler alert, this is where life is going. Notice, by the way, as we see these two chapters, and I'll go relatively quickly. But in these two chapters, he's going to show us these couples 
these couplets. Chapter 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. From God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There'll be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. (coughs) Excuse me. And he said, he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things kainos. It literally means unused. And he said to me, Right. These words are true and faithful. They said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God. He will be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and talked with me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Stop. Before we even get there, understand John is taken from the outside in. And this is what he sees in the beginning. Notice in verse 1, <coughs> there's a new heaven and a new earth. Might I, might I say, might I say, might I say the new heaven from which everything comes from. from the thing. Earth, by the way, where man is going to be in essence. And that, by the way, even today, this is where the choice is made for us to spend eternity in heaven. This is the portal. John sees this thing coming down, and he sees this thing coming down, and what he sees is what God's always really wanted, just to be with us. Notice in verse 3 it says, The tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They'll be his people. God will be with them and be their God. This is what he wants, is intimacy. But when God is there, we've now seen in chapter 6 through 19 a world, what it looks like without Jesus. Now we see what a world looks like with Jesus. Every tear wiped away. No more death, nor sorrowing, no crying, nor pain. All those former things. No morgues, no funerals, no hospitals, no graves, no abortion clinics, no miscarriages, no police, no things stolen, nothing mugged, nothing abducted, no doctors, no bruises, no broken bones, no asthma, no chronic fatigue, no PMS. No migraines, no bleedings, no allergies, no geriatrics or getting old, no cancer, no blood issues, no ever having to say, I'm sorry, no ever having to hear, I'm sorry, no oops, no I wish I hadn't, no goodbyes, no regrets of things said or done, no conspiracies, no lying, no politics, they're almost hand in hand, no broken promises, no FIFA, sorry I had to throw that in, no disappointments, no backsliding, no fallings, no failings, no caving-ins, no bad peer pressure, no self-loathing, no futile promises ever, ever again. And that's why he wipes out the memory. Because how can I not have regrets if I look back? That is mercy. And like a dream that evaporates when I awake, all that stuff will be gone and I'll be like, what was that thing? What was that thing? Never mind. He says, look, I'm the beginning and the end. I started this whole thing. We're going to end this thing together. I'm the Alpha and Omega, first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. Are you thirsty? You'll never have to be. And he who overcomes, verse 7, you know what I really want? I just want to be your God and have you be my son. 
those people that are removed? Well, that's because that's what they claimed instead. And he says, look at And he carried me in the spirit. Now let me show you the bride. You guys want to see the bride? Verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit and I saw to a great high mountain and he showed me a great city. Wait a minute. The bride's a city? Well, here's the thing. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And now we're seeing the bride of Christ. But can I say, when a, when the, if you've been to a wedding, we've done about 400 of them. Literally, when you see the first thing you usually you see is the dress. Even before the bride, you see the dress and the veil. And the reason I say that is, you know what the city is? It's the covering. What you're marrying isn't the dress. What you're marrying is the girl inside. And going, Let me show you. But first you see the dress. Listen, a great night mountain showed me a great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like the most precious stone, like that diamond jasper stone. Clear as crystal. And she had a great high wall, 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates and the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates at the east, three at the north, three at the south, three at the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. On them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. By the way, I think it's interesting because John's writing this. Do you think John looked to see where he was on that? Do you think, did you, do you think he looked to see who the number 12 was? I think I wouldn't. Oh, at this moment, I think I'd just be so flabbergasted. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, its walls. The city is laid out like a square, and honestly, kind of like a Rubik's Cube. It says the length as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, its breadth, its height are equal. And then he measured the wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of man, which is an angel. Interesting statement there. The construction of the wall was of jasper. The city was of pure gold, like clear glass. All that gold we fight for now is going to be pavement there. The foundations of the walls, by the way, were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. Jasper, sapphire, calcotomy, emerald, sardonyx, sardius, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysophrase, jacinth, and an amethyst. Twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now stop. Okay, now listen. This gets so fun. First of all, what he sees are another couplet. Remember that first one, a new heaven and a new earth? Now he sees another one, a foundation and gates. The foundation, what it's built on, gates, how you get in. Just like the other, where heaven, what it's built on, and earth, how you get in. Well, hear me on this. He looks and he sees this thing and he says, let's measure it out. 12,000 furlongs. Do any of you go, whoa, 12,000 furlongs? Yeah, I didn't think so. When was the last time you furlonged anything? So let's do a little bit of math. This is what it basically works out to be. It works out to be roughly 1,500 miles. What that means is basically from here, you would measure to Moscow. Moscow that way, Moscow that way, and Moscow that way. So let's do a little bit more math while we're at it. We've got a Rubik's Cube that is as long and wide and high as from here to Moscow. Now, if we took every person who's ever lived right now, and every person who's ever lived right now is roughly how many people? Seven billion. That's how many people live right now on the planet. Now, I want to remind you, people who go, well, then how many people have ever lived? Well, I want to remind you, we didn't hit one billion people until 1809. We actually didn't hit two billion people until 1927, I believe is when it is. So it isn't like we actually had 
billions and billions of people ever. We are just growing because it's an exponential thing. The conservative, or say the, the, the comfortable estimate is 14 billion people that ever lived. But let's just go with, let's round up. 20 billion people. Let's go with 20 billion people. Let's say that of all the people that ever lived, there were 20 billion people, and we gave every person that ever lived the borough, not the part, but the borough of Camden. David gets the something the size of the borough of Camden. Dominic gets something the size of the borough of Camden. Allie, I don't know if she's going to do with most of that property. Well, she'll probably build something on the borough of Camden. And, we, and every person that ever existed the size of the borough of Camden, we would not take up half of the New Jerusalem. You really think God created it for a handful of people? That's not even heaven. That's just the New Jerusalem. And then there is a but not only that there is a wall. There's a wall there. The wall, how, how big is the wall according to this text? 144 cubits? When was the last time you measured with a cubit? Oh my goodness, 144 cubits. 144 cubit basically is the tip of your elbow to the tip of your finger, your longest finger. Basically, it's a half of a yard, or half of a meter, I should say. So all you have to do is half that, then say that many yards. So basically, let's do it this way. If you went to the Tower of London, and you looked at the Tower of London, and you doubled it, that's your wall. Now, the two things that we want in a city... One is safety. The question is whether it's that high or that deep, or both. The second is a water source. That's fundamental. He says, let me show you the bride. Beautiful, isn't she? Perfect and pure and transparent. How great of that is a bride. And guess who gets to live there? You do. And I do. Can I say as your realtor... This is your home, built by the, I should say this, designed by the greatest architect, the one who framed the universe, and built by the greatest carpenter that ever lived. And the best part is that the price has already been paid, and you didn't have to pay it. And this is where you get to live. Every precious stone. Interesting, by the way, I think it's interesting, the gates. And we talk about this. What is in front of every gate? What could block the gate? What's the door of each of these gates? A pearl. One pearl for every gate. And that's why we say, oh, the pearly gates, right? By the way, so, so hear me on this. What makes a pearl different from every other precious gem? Hmm? Okay, the way it's made. Although it's made kind of with pressure, and it's kind of made out of an irritation. There's another thing. You know, it's interesting because we get to be called that, a pearl of great price. How about its shape? Realize a pearl is very different from every other precious stone by its shape. So get this. Every gate looks like something where you have to take something round and roll it away to get in. Does that look like anything else you've ever seen? Boom! Do you think God was trying to point that out? I mean, I think for actually 6,000 years, God invented oysters to give us pearls for this purpose. Oh, anyways. So with that in mind, just I mean, there's so much more we can develop, but we're already behind time. But follow me in this. He goes, let me show you the bride. And it's like the way into this place that's beautiful and perfect and pure, by the way, that is from here to Moscow and up. 
He goes, oh, listen, this particular property, perfect and pure, roll away the stone, baby, and get in. But listen, verse 22, I saw no temple there. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There was no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminated the Lamb as its light. Now, what am I looking for, by the way, in this place? Jesus Christ. And by the way, you know what he is? Well, according to this, what I realize is he's the temple because I get to dwell with God, and he's also my light source. And all the nations who are saved shall walk in its light. The kings of the earth bring their glory and honor. Its gates shall not be shut all by day. There'll be no night there, so you never have to shut these pearls. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations to it. There shall be no, by no means anything that enters or defiles or causes an abomination or a lie but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm almost done. Forgive me for going late, but hey, I don't get you for two more weeks. I'm, I'm milking it. Please hear me. Are you written? Are you sure your name's written in the light, Book of Life? Sefer HaChayim. Sefer HaChayim. The term Book of Life is not a new term. Every Hebrew understood it. Today we have a registry. When David was born, I'm assuming in Cambridge, he, had a, he was signed into a registry so that they knew he was legally British. In those days, you were written in a book. That book said that you were officially alive, born under a family, and they chased your lineage from it. That's how, by the way, Mary and Joseph have to get to Bethlehem, because they checked the Sefer HaChim. How does one get in the book of life, then? You have to be born. This is why we're told you have to be born again. You can't just join a church. You can't just do nice stuff. You have to be born by the gift of Jesus Christ. And that's what we'll realize in just a moment. Last thing. He showed me a pure, verse 1, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal. And remember, he saw from the outside, new heavens and an earth. He zoomed into the city, and now he's looking into the city itself. A pure river, a water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was a tree of life which bore 12 fruits, each yielding its fruit every month, the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. And I saw no more curse. Of course, why would there be? You know why there's no more curse? Because God's there. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, because I'm looking for Jesus. And if I'm going to look for Jesus, I can't see with one eye Jesus and the curse with the other after the cross. And his servants shall serve him. It's appropriate. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There'll be no night there, no lamp, nor light of the sun, because the Lord God gives them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now listen. John looks in, and he sees the one thing that every, every city, every city wants to be up on a hill because then they feel safe. They have gravity in their favor. So you put up a big wall so that the enemy has to go against it. That, that wall says, I feel safe. But if you put it up on a hill, you tend not to find water sources. And what he sees is coming out of it, is this water source. Now hear me on this. This is not a new concept either. This is Ezekiel 47. You see what happens at the end of Ezekiel is that God takes Ezekiel and he shows him the temple. And as he shows him the temple, out of the temple, out of, the, out of Jerusalem, comes this trickling water. And as this water trickles, he goes, now walk with me. And he starts to walk in this stream. And he goes out about a third of a mile. And as he goes out about a third of a mile, it's up to his ankles. And then as he walks another third of a mile, it's up to his knees. 
And this is the weirdest thing. Now think about how this is the opposite, the opposite of the world today. What we have today is at the source it's gushing, but then you go a little farther and it's less gushing and you go farther away and it's smaller. Here it starts small and it's trickling, but then he walks and it's to his ankles and then to his knees and then to its midsection and then it's a river he can't cross. He goes, and he, and he goes, now take a look at that. And then he looks and he goes back to the source and he goes and he sees a tree that bears forth its fruit that is evergreen and bears forth fruit for the healing of the nations. For the same thing we see here. Here is the difference. In this world, it seems like the bad is the overcomer. You never say, oh, you seldom say, oh, well, that don't do, don't come around with that joy. That's contagious. But don't come around with that cold. That's contagious. That's another story. I mean, when does somebody walk in healthy and the health is contagious to everyone? He goes, we're going to flip it back where it belongs. Because where Jesus is, good overcomes. There's the point. There is an endless supply of life. And it comes from him. And let me tell you, if there's one place that you would say is the most unpure of all the water sources in the world, seven times or so more concentrated than any... um, than any ocean, it's clearly Camden Canal. No, I'm just kidding. It's actually the Dead Sea. Now, that may pump your stomach there. there you know, here, there, it's even worse. And what would we do without the Thames? We are a city built around the river. And there is a city built around the river. The only difference is the river comes up from it. And he says, now, by the way, until then, you get to be that. Here's the good news. That living water, it isn't like you meet someone and you're like, hi, right? You actually pour forth to them, but what happens is as it continues to go, it grows. There's the beauty. You're not like fire hosing someone. I might, I know, I get that. But the idea of it is you're pouring forth, and as you're pouring forth, you're spilling the goodness of God, the joy and the love of God on other people, but you better do it in the name of Jesus so they don't get confused. So the end of this book ends with this. You know what? The bride has come. The spirits has come. Let those who are thirsty come. Understand, this was never the kind of thing where God's like, well, now I'm with my posse, man. You ain't in. He's like, I've written this now so that you would know you can still come. You can still come and get that thirst quenched. You can still come and get that emptiness filled. You can still come and get that desperation satiated. But for that to happen, you're going to have to come. And for that, John says, you know what? Even so, come, Lord Jesus And that word is Maranatha. Amen. Beloved, as we go to prayer, have you come to Jesus? I'm not talking about, again, have you been at a church? Have you done stuff? The question is, are you born again? When the religious leader, the guy that everyone thought was so perfect in his example, Nicodemus, comes over, Jesus doesn't even play games with him. He's like, you need to be born again. He's like, what? I would kill my mom do that and he's like no you've already been physically born now you need to be spiritually born and that comes through the gift of jesus christ at the cross see the death is half the story the death pays for our sins it's the resurrection the rolling of the stone like the pearl at the gate it's the resurrection that says new life and unless you accept the gift of jesus christ it's not just the forgiveness of sins it's the new life that we get as a result of that but you can't have a resurrection without a death and the moment i gave my life to jesus the old me died And there's a whole new me, and praise God for that. 
So as we go to prayer, I want to give you that choice to accept the gift of Jesus Christ today. And I want you to know this is just a hint of it. The most important thing in that place is who lives there. And that's my king, my Lord, my love, my life, my light. I just can't wait to spend eternity with him. Praise God, I get to start now. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful, amazing text. And on this Sunday, the first Sunday in June, we are here, Lord, 2015, and we're turning our hearts to you when we're saying, Lord, I, I get it. I get it. Jesus, you are so much more than I could ever imagine on earth. Like what John has seen. And you were still involved even in churches that locked you out of the church. Even in churches that raise up people completely against you. Even in churches that are spiritually dead, you are still calling out to them. Because you are never, you're not just bailing on those churches. You are still hungry for those people. And if there be anyone in here like what John has seen and what is with these churches. Make us people, Lord, today who can hear you knocking, who can hear you calling out, who can hear you calling us to overcome. And then as we, as John records the things which must take place or will take place, metatalta, we see that heavenly worship service in 4 and 5, like those of Philly that were saved from the time of that great trial to test those who live on the earth. Oh God, I pray right now that we would be there. That we would be there saying, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Adonai Lechim Zivaut. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And Lord, I pray that you would not, we would not have to be people like those through the tribulation who would have to experience such grave situations to finally say yes to you. Oh, that we would turn to you now before it gets any worse. Lord, in the end of it all, after all that wraps up, there's a whole new world to live in. And I see a hint of that in the whole new world you're creating inside of me the moment I said yes to you. And I pray, Lord, for every believer in here that we would hunger for that return. We would say as John, even in the midst of all of those rough 6 through 19 chapters, yet, Lord, we see even in that that John can see the beauty on the other side of it, like a woman in childbirth, though the labor pains are grievous and intense, the beauty of what is birthed on the other side is so profound and powerful that the rest can be forgotten and will be, not even called to mind. So Lord, for us, may we crave and say, Maranatha, Lord, even come quickly, even come today. But if there be any within the voice here coming out, there be any who aren't sure if they've if they're really born again, if they've actually been written into the Sefer Chaim, the the book of life. Today they can walk out of here sure, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, show them that. And if that's you today, I'm just going to pray a prayer, and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask for you simply to give a confident, resounding Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer today. Let those words be my words today. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, I'm a sinner. And you punished all my sin on the cross of your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, on the cross. And he died on that cross for me. He was buried just like scripture promised. Not only did he die and was buried, but he also three days later rose again on that third day. 
And on that third day, he showed me that death and sin and guilt and hell have all been conquered and vanquished. And you offer me forgiveness, purity, adoption, and to be born again. And so for that, I say yes. I may not understand everything, but I know this much, that if you really want to do all of that, I'd be silly to say no. So I say yes. I hand you what I have of my life. I ask you now to transform me and make me yours. And write my name in that Sefarah now, I pray. And Jesus being my Lord, my Savior, my Master, and my Ransom. I'm yours now in Jesus' name. If you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.